All right. Good morning. Everybody's finding their seats. I don't know if you were paying attention. Actually, most of you probably weren't paying attention to the music that was being played, which is fine. We want you to talk to one another, to mingle with one another. That is part of the reason why we, we break for that five-minute period is so that, that you get to know one another and can maybe share uh, some joy that you've experienced this week or or just uh, make some more friends. So that that's good. So you were doing that, which is awesome, which means you probably weren't listening to the song that was on. It's a song that, that I chose. It's called um, Hills and Valleys by a guy named Taryn Wells, or Taryn Wells. I actually don't know how to say his name. T-A-U-R-E-N. Taryn? Taryn? Torin. You all know. You're smarter than me. Good for you. So Torin Wells, right? Hills and Valleys. And if you didn't catch it, I cut a little clip of the chorus for you. So just listen to it for a second. Dude can sing, right? You're welcome for cutting that video and not singing the lyrics for you yourself, first of all. Right? You don't want to hear my falsetto. It's real bad. Right? But I love that song. And I love the lyrics to that song. That's why I put the the lyrics up there so you can read them. The God of the hills and valleys. He's the God of the hills and valleys. We know what those are, don't we? The mountains of life, they're special. They're amazing. When all things are good and beautiful, more than that, when all things are good and beautiful and we experience God's presence in tangible, powerful ways, we feel close to God on the mountaintops of life. The mountains are great. If you've read Scripture, you might be familiar with this story. Peter, James, and John go up onto a mountaintop. Right? They're on the inner circle with Jesus and Jesus shines like the sun. And Moses and Elijah come down. And what do Peter and John say? They say, Jesus, let's stay here. Let's build tents. We're on this mountaintop. This is amazing. Let's stay here forever. That's what it feels like when we're going through the mountaintops. We can see and sense God's glory in powerful ways. And we think we never, ever want to leave. Let's just build our lives here on this mountaintop. Sadly, you know, life isn't just a bunch of mountaintops, is it? It's got valleys too, doesn't it? Some of those valleys are very deep. Some of those valleys are very, very dark. On the mountaintops of life, God is close. Food tastes better. Colors are brighter. Joy abounds. Everything is awesome. As the Lego guys sing, right? Everything is awesome. That's what we want to say. I told you, you didn't want to hear me sing. Right? Right? But then when we sink down into those valleys, we find ourselves feeling alone. We start to question God's presence, perhaps even his goodness. If if he's out there, is he even good? Does he even care? Food loses its taste. We don't want to eat. Our friends don't really want to be around us because we're kind of a downer. We're honest, we don't really want to be around them. In a lot of ways, 
When we're living in the valley, sometimes you might even feel like darkness becomes your closest friend. Now, you don't have to raise your hand in here this morning, but I know many of us, if not all of us, have faced days, weeks, maybe even months, or sadly, some of us have faced years living in a valley. A valley of grief, whether it be from death or a diagnosis, maybe a divorce, a breakup, a valley of depression from perhaps you lost your job, relational abuse, your dad wasn't that great, your mom wasn't that great, maybe both of them were absent, some kind of dysfunction, perhaps even for persecution, your faith, and your love in Jesus, and yet the world is just coming at you, and you can't understand why. The reality is, church, that valleys come. Valleys come. Despair and darkness creep in, and they cloud our ability to feel and sense God's presence. So this morning, I would like to invite you to come with me to a scary place. We're going to go down into the depths of that valley this morning. We're going to see how do we navigate life when the walls of that canyon close in around us. When the sun sinks beneath the horizon, we cannot even see our hands in front of our face. Have you ever been in a cave where they turn off all the lights and you hold your hand up right here, you can't even see it? Some of us have experienced darkness that dark. What do we do when the darkness around us is that dark? It's palpable. We can no longer sense God's presence. The psalm we're going to look at this morning, I think, gives us a glimpse. We're going to read it. It's not completely hopeless, but I do want to give you a heads up. Wes sort of already did. The very last line of this psalm is not positive encouraging Caleb, right? It ends with, darkness is my closest friend. The end. Mic drop. Really? That's, that's it? It's not exactly super positive. While it's true that Psalm 88 does not end on an upbeat, I want to invite you to pay close attention to the beginning. It's a raw psalm. It's an honest psalm. It's a psalm from someone who is really, really struggling. But I want to suggest to you this morning, it is not someone who's lost hope completely. The first verse clues us into that, as do a couple of others that I'll point out once we finish reading it. And so, let's do that. Again, if you're not in the habit of bringing a Bible, whether it be a hard copy or one on your phone or whatever, tablet, whatever, one of the devices, I would encourage you to do so. I want you to make sure that whoever's putting words up on the screen behind this, this pulpit, whoever's doing that, make sure that the words that are going to put up on the screen are the words that God has put into his word. So if you're not in the habit of getting out your Bibles, please do so now. I'll wait. You've got them in front of you. Get out on the phone, get out your book. We'll read it together. Psalm 88 says this, A song, a psalm of the sons of Korah, for the director of music, according to Mahalath Leniath, which most people think is some type of melody, so a tune, probably a pub song if you ask me. Maybe not, don't quote me on that. A maskil of Heman the Ezraite. He writes this Lord, you are the God who saves me. Day and night I cry out to you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. 
I am overwhelmed with troubles, and my life draws near to death. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm like one without strength. I'm set apart with the dead, like the slain who die in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. You've put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. You have taken from me my closest friends, and you have made me repulsive to them. I'm confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I call to you, Lord, every day. I spread out my hands to you. Do you show wonders to the dead? Do their spirits rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave? Your faithfulness in destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? I cry out to you for help. Lord, in the morning, my prayer comes before you. Why? Why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? From my youth, I have suffered and been close to death. I have borne your terrors and am, and, and am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long, they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You've taken from me friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. Oof. It's heavy, isn't it? Kind of a downer, this He-Man or He-Man, however you say it, the Ezraite. He's kind of a downer, isn't he? We aren't told what's going on in this dude's life. We're not. Apparently something really bad. And apparently from his perspective, it's been really bad for really long. Look with me at verse 15. He says, From youth I have suffered and been close to death. I have borne your terrors and am, and am in despair. Despair is a brutal word. It's an easy word to say. It is a horrible word to live out, isn't it? To live with despair is to live with little or no hope. There's no light at the end of your tunnel. Whether it be a tunnel of grief or sadness, depression, doesn't matter. To despair is to see no light at that end of the tunnel. If you're despairing, you sort of resign to make your home in the darkness. You're not just there walking through it. You set up camp. This is my home now. Whether I like it or not, I don't love this, but my eyes have sort of acclimated to the darkness and I've tried to hope for too many times only to have my hope dashed once again by another wave of darkness. I'm just done. I'm just, I'm just going to set up camp here. It's dark, it's bleak, but at least I know it. At least I know what's going on. I'll try and make myself as comfortable as possible here. That's what despair is. Folks, I've counseled people who live here. They've known darkness for so long. They've known addiction for so long, just constantly falling off the wagon, back into it again. Having hope, that hope being dashed. And here they are again 
in the valley. They'd known abuse and hardship for so long. They put themselves out there only to get smacked again by a dad who's never there or whatever. Fill in the blank. They'd known a tough marriage for so long. Unrelenting health issues for so long. They've lost all strength to continue. They don't even want to look for the light at the end of the tunnel anymore because they've done so in the past and it's been snatched from them once again. And so they've just settled to set up tent there in the valley. Try and make the most of it. But the most of it is pretty bleak. I'm not being critical here of these people. I'm not. I'm not being critical of Haman. And I want you to know that neither is God. You say, Levi, how do you know that God is not being critical of this man or of me when I make my home in the darkness? the depths of the valley of despair. How do you know God's, God's not being critical with me? See, when, when I've come to church over the years, all I've known is, you know, you put your Sunday best on and you come on with a smile and you pretend like everything's great for an hour and then you go home and you go back to the life that's other chaos and darkness. I've been encouraged to put a mask on my whole life. It kind of feels like Christians just want me to fake it till I make it. They just give me another Bible verse to quote at me, Right? Here's a Bible verse. This should encourage you. Get it together. Get happy. Honestly, you may be thinking, Levi, sometimes it doesn't feel like I'm allowed to be sad. Sometimes it doesn't feel like I'm allowed to be depressed in church. On top of that, if you allow me to be really honest, the voices that I hear in my head, they tell me really horrible things about myself. They tell me about how upset God is with the way I feel. They tell me how bad of a Christian I am because I'm feeling this way. Boy, you'd sure be a better Christian. If you were a real Christian, you wouldn't be as sad and depressed as you are. You'd get your act together, right? God wouldn't be so disappointed in me if I wasn't such a downer all the time. Loved one, and you are loved. Heman's words have been preserved by the God of heaven for you. For the depressed and downtrodden in life. Would God have saved and preserved our man Heman's words if he were displeased with him for writing them? Of course not. I want to share a few words from an article I read from Crossway this week with you. He says this, Consider the astounding fact that this psalm is in the Bible. Imagine being able to speak with Heman the Ezraite and telling him that his lament is a part of Scripture preserved for thousands of years in God's words so that other followers of the Lord might know how to bear their souls to God also. What might Heman realize if he knew that? The Lord not only heard these words, He inspired them so that other Christians might sing them in the coming ages to express their own sorrow to God. Heman would also recognize that other followers of the Lord share their troubles and carry their same burdens. Consider just how many believers since Heman's time have sung these words, sharing their grief with his. 
Friends, hear this. Your life may be filled with far more suffering than my own. But Scripture teaches that your troubles do not belong to you alone. They don't. God has placed this psalm of lament and others like it in the Scripture so that we could all learn how to cry to the Lord in our sadness and grief together. Psalms like this one teach us to share in one another's sufferings and to bear one another's burdens. Contrary to what you might think or believe, this psalm is not a condemnation of depression. This psalm is an invitation for how to deal with it when it visits its ugly face at our door. God is not offended by your feelings. He made you to feel. He gave you the capacity to feel. He's not offended by your feelings. Nor does He wish you that you'd just take a quarter and go tell someone else who cares. That's not God's heart for you. He does not wish that you would just stuff it. Just fake it till you make it. Just put a smile on and pretend to be happy. Quite the contrary. Psalm 88 clues us into the invitation of our Lord. He gives us permission to vomit on Him and our community verbally. Now, I apologize for the mental image here, but I think it, it'll preach, as they say, right? Heman is vomiting emotionally. He's vomiting on his community. It's a psalm for the director of music for the sons of Korah to be sung in the midst of a community, a lament to put words into our mouths to explain the depression and sadness we often feel, to be able to look across the room at one another and say, my life is hard and I don't feel like God cares. God says, I'm going to put this in my word so that you feel comfortable sharing that in the midst of community and so that you know that I can take whatever you want to throw at me. I've got broad shoulders, right? As we see here, Heman is vomiting on his community of faith, his weakness, expecting that they'll deal tenderly with it, and he's coming before the Lord, leveling some pretty serious stuff. To go a little bit further with the vomit imagery, again, I'm sorry, right? Vomit is not pleasant. Nobody likes to puke. It smells bad, it tastes bad. Sorry. <laughs> there, there we go. Preach it, she says. Right? <laughs> There's not much that's good about it. Other than, if you stuff your sickness, it feels pretty horrible. Going through the process isn't great. But if we'll get the sick out, sometimes we realize that we feel a little bit better after, Right? The reality is that you and I can almost make ourselves more sick by stuffing our emotions and pretending like everything is fine when it's not. Psalm 88 is an indictment against fakeness before the Lord. See, God does not desire for you to wear a mask when you enter this place or when you enter into His presence. Can you truly ever get to know anybody who's fake? We can't stand hanging out with fake people, right? Especially my generation, you're a hypocrite, right? That's like the, the one thing that everybody levels against the church. A bunch of hypocrites. Do you know what a hypocrite is? 
It's someone who pretends like everything's fine, like they have everything together when they don't, and it's obvious to everyone. You know what I tell people when they say, well, I don't believe in Jesus because his people are a bunch of hypocrites. It's like, yeah, yep. You would, you would fit in at my church. If you don't have it all together, you would fit it in because we're, we're a bunch of messes. We don't have it all together. We are sinful. And we don't wear it as a bat of honor, our sin. No, we take it as sinful and it breaks us. It makes us feel weak. And together, we take our weakness to the Lord and say, thanks be to Jesus that He covers over my sin. And that He has promised to deal tenderly with my weakness and with my sin and my shame. Fakeness is garbage. You can't, if you're not going to be real and open and honest with who you are in repentance, and that's the key, right? Our culture's like, just accept me for who I am, right? It's like some of the things that you want me to accept, Jesus is very much against. He's not against you, but what you're, you're saying is defining you. What you're saying is this is who I am and there's no problem with it. If you go down that road long enough, it's going to lead to death, destruction, and a deeper, darker valley of despair. And so as a church, when we come together, we don't say, well, I'm weak and, and let's celebrate my weakness and sin. No, we say, I'm weak and I need someone to save me from this weakness. These problems are not who I am. They're sinful defects and my Savior loves me in spite of them and loves me enough never to leave me in them. He promises to recreate me, to make my weakness, to, to give me strength, to make me into something new and beautiful so that I can live up into my God-given potential of what I was always created to be as a male and female in the image of God. And so when I say, don't be fake, I'm not saying, well, just say that there's no problems and we'll just embrace everyone for who they are. No. What I'm saying is, for you to have a relationship with someone, you need to start with where they are. We can start with where you are. God says we can start with where you are. Let's start there. But I love you too much to ever leave you there. That's his invitation. Don't be fake. Take off the mask. Look to Jesus as our model. That's who we want to be like. Not who culture sets up. We want to look like Jesus. We want to love like Jesus. We want to serve like Jesus. We want to help the lost get found like Jesus. Jesus is our model. That's who we want to be like. And when we fall short, we say, Lord, help me. Help me. I fell short here. Help me be more like Jesus. Heman continues. He says a lot of heavy things. He says he's overwhelmed with troubles. He feels like he's going to die. In many ways, he says he feels like he's already dead, like left, like the, the life has drained from him. He's weak. He's like a corpse, isolated, alone. You can think of someone in a casket, in a box. He's feel cut, he feels cut off from God. And worse, this is in, in the Bible, remind you. He's accusing God. This is your fault, he says. He's accusing him. God, you're responsible for this. You put me in this pit, he says. Your wrath lies heavily on me. 
You have overwhelmed me. You have made me repulsive to my friends. And for why, he wants to know. He's got questions for God that aren't the nicest, right? As I said, he's, he's bringing some accusations before the Lord. Doesn't suffering have a way of making us do that? Again, I'll remind you, God is not offended by these emotions. He's not offended by your questions. Ask them. Be open. Be honest. Ask your questions. Level your emotions in all their rawness and vulnerability. But let me point out to you that while Heman is comfortable expressing his emotions and even leveling some accusations against the Lord, he also roots them in truth. Before he launches into his laundry list of emotions, Heman begins with some bedrock truth of God's character. You see, while he may feel that God has abandoned him, while he might feel that God is the cause of his current situation even, he's determined in his heart to remember the bedrock truth of God's character. Verse 1, only God can save. Man, I feel hopeless, but only God gives me any reason to have hope. God is the God of my salvation. I don't feel saved right now. I'm questioning everything, but the Lord is the God of my salvation. He is the one who can save me, and He is the one that I'm going to cry out to. You see, while he may question why God has allowed this darkness to visit him, he also starts out his questioning by acknowledging that God is the only source of hope and help, perhaps an answer. Again, church, you're allowed to question. God is not offended by your emotions. He's not offended by your doubt. But I would encourage you, with all of the power of emotions that we feel, I would encourage you, do not allow yourself to forget where your help comes from. Your emotions may be strong, but they do not always tell the truth. Heman felt alone and abandoned, but he wasn't. He wasn't. See, while it's true that God is sovereign and in control, I wonder sometimes why we're so quick to blame the Lord. I know He's in control. We say, oh, God is sovereign. He has a plan for our life. And He does. But sometimes I think we don't wade into the nuances of theology enough. I believe that God is in control of everything. But I don't believe that He directly causes everything that happens in your life. I think he's big enough to oversee all of the variables and give you and I some level of free will, along with Satan's, Satan and demons, some level of free will. So while you're allowed to point the finger at God, to shake your fist at God, he can handle that. Sometimes I wonder if as believers who believe in the supernatural, who believe in the sinful fallen nature of man, why we wouldn't be more quick to point the finger at Satan. And it's sin rather than the God of the Bible who has proved himself time and time again to be so incredibly good. See, we know God does not tempt anyone to do evil. We're told that in James 1.13. He does not cause evil. Free will exists. He's over it. Everything passes through his hands. I don't know how to reconcile that, but I wonder sometimes if in our anger and in our angst and our suffering, 
if it might be more helpful to point the finger at where it might really belong, Satan and the sinfulness of mankind. So while you're free to question and even accuse the Lord if you want to, he he can take it. I would remind you from Scripture that God cannot cause evil. He does not cause evil. And He loves you. Also, I would remind you from Scripture in these moments of honesty of some other people who felt just like you. Lost, forsaken, alone, despairing. Crying out to God with the question, Why? Why is this happening? How could you? I would remind you that they didn't get the answer that they wanted. But it was the one that they needed. Rather than receiving an explanation of God's providence, God visits them with His presence. You see, church, even a small glimpse of God's glory can do wonders for the anguished soul. There's a prophet named Elijah. He's fleeing for his life in 1 Kings chapter 19. It's back before that, but if you want to read about it, you can. A prophet named Elijah in the Old Testament. He's one of the good ones. A man of the Lord. Hears from God, not afraid to stand up to people of power to let them know that what they're doing is wrong. He tells Ahab the king, who's tremendously sinful, uh, you're not following God, and because you're not, I'm going to pray that it's not going to rain. And it didn't rain for three years in Israel. You can imagine how bad it got. We had a little drought at the beginning of the summer and everybody was kind of freaking out. Imagine three years, right? And he's declared, I am praying against rain as a curse from the Lord so that you might humble yourselves before God and follow Him. It doesn't rain for three years. Ahab's on the hunt for Elijah trying to kill this guy because he's praying against rain. Again, assigning assigning uh, fault to the wrong place. Eventually, Elijah shows up. It rains. They have a huge contest. God proves himself. He is the God of rain. He is the God over all. He is the one true God to be worshipped. Elijah kills all the prophets of Baal, 400. Probably a pretty bloody scene. Just is. And then what happens? He runs for his life because he's terrified of the queen Jezebel who says, far be it from me if I don't kill you by the end of this day. He runs and he flees and he hides in the valley. And he cries out to the Lord, why have you done this for me? I've done everything you've wanted and now my life is being hunted and I'm the only one left. And he throws a pity party for himself. And do you know what God does? Gives him a Bible verse and says, suck it up. No. He sends angels to feed him. Why? Because hangry is real. (laughs) It's real. He sends angels to feed him. And then he tucks him in and gives him a little nap. Right? Why? Because sometimes, church, the most spiritual thing you and I can do is sleep. Is sleep. Tiredness can take us to really, really dark places quickly. It's evidenced by every two-year-old who ever misses their nap. (laughs) He feeds him. He gives him some sleep. And Elijah wakes up. He's still in the valley. So he says, all right, Elijah, I want you to go into a cave. So I'm going to make my presence pass before you. And then there's a storm and an earthquake and fire, and God's not in any of that. 
and then there's a still, small voice. And somehow, some way, Elijah glimpses the glory of the Lord. He doesn't have all his questions answered. The why never gets answered. How could you? Never gets answered. God just shows him a little bit of himself. And that's enough. I see you. I hear you. I love you. Trust me. What of Job? You may have read the book of Job in the Bible, right? Job. Job is crushed in the valley of life. He's like a bad country song. His dog dies. His family dies. Everyone dies. His wife's a total nag, right? It's a horrible country song. His friends show up. They're horrible. You must have done something wrong to deserve this. We know that we live in a world where good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people, which hopefully you all know is not true, as evidenced by the book of Job, right? But his friends, they're, they're clueless. What'd you do? God must be punishing you. He's like, I didn't do anything. I have no idea. We're told that Job is righteous, and he is. Never once does he curse God. Never once. But towards the end of the book of Job, he does get pretty feisty. How could you, Lord? After everything I've done, this is what I get? Show yourself, he says. Explain to me why. And what does God do? Well, Job, here's a Bible verse. Just tuck this away and suck it up, right? Buttercup. Fake it till you make it, man. No. Does he explain everything that's going on? You as the reader get to know there's a, a courtroom in heaven and Satan is like, hey, this guy, he seems pretty legit, but that's because you've blessed him. Let me take him out. God's like, oh yeah, Job, you saw him. He is legit. I do love him. You can test him. Job never gets any of that. We get it. He doesn't. I'm not sure if that would have helped. And God doesn't give him that. Why? Because it wouldn't have helped. What does he give him? Glory. He shows up in a storm. He says, Job, how you doing? I've heard you. I love you. He shows up, and I believe it's tender, but also stern. It's loving, but truthful. Job, do you know where I keep the lightning? Have you tamed the beasts of the earth? Do you know how deep the ocean is? Have you stretched out its parameters? I have. I have. Can you tell waves to stop? And they listen. You see, church, God shows up in splendor and in power. He doesn't answer all of Job's questions. But if you read to the very end, Job's heart is softened after the Lord has said, I've seen you, I hear you, see my glory. Job's response is, though you slay me, I will, I will worship you. I've spoken of things I do not understand. You're good. Forgive me. Church, Psalm 88 invites us to bear our souls before God in honesty and vulnerability. You're allowed to feel what you feel. It's not wrong. You can't change it. It's not an easy button to make you stop feeling what you're feeling. But do not let your emotions overshadow the character of God. And like Heman, 
Don't lose your eternal perspective. Think about what the reality that this psalm exists teaches us. Its very existence clues us into the truth that sometimes even mature believers suffer, and sometimes that suffering is, commit, uh, is permitted to continue far longer than what we think is right or is fair. But also tells us that there's a God in heaven who sees and hears and knows and cares. The psalm also teaches us that the presence of suffering is not an indication of God's disinterest or anger or ambivalence towards you. We're not told what Heman is going through, but what he, he was going through what compelled him to write this beautiful lament with, which God preserved. Maybe that was why God allowed him to go through it, so that it might compel him to write something that Christians could use throughout generations. I guarantee you, church, when you and I get up into glory because of Jesus, we get up there and we say, Jesus, good to see you. Been waiting for this, right? After that, we say, could you introduce me to Heman? I would love to meet him. You get introduced to him, you say, man, the words you wrote got me through a really dark time. They were a blessing to my soul. Can you explain to me your story? Tell me what was going on. My guess is, he said, yeah, I could go into all of that, but let me just tell you this. Everything that I faced, everything that I went to was totally meaningful and God was so abundantly good, it pales in comparison to the glory that I now experience today because of that. I know that's what he'd say. You say, how do you know that? Because of Romans 8. Romans 8, that is our promise. From the Apostle Paul, he says, I do not count this present suffering worth anything in compared to the glory that will one day be revealed because of it. See, we're, we're told that we're going to suffer. Jesus told us to, prayer, to prepare for suffering. In Romans, we're told that suffering happens, but it's not going to compare to the glory that happens. In Philippians 1.29, we're told that even God appoints suffering sometimes for our good, to mold and shape our character. And yet, we've been warned, we've been told, we've been promised, and yet, when suffering comes... We're still left with that question with the darkness of the valley. Surely God must have abandoned me. How can this be? Where are you? If you exist, you can't be good. Church, when that happens, it will happen. I invite you to remember our brother Heman, to remember Elijah, to remember the prophet, or not the prophet, to remember Job. But most of all, to remember Jesus Christ. More specifically, to remember His cross. Friend, if God Himself did not forego suffering, if the Father allowed His Son to suffer for the greatest good ever, period, don't you think that He might invite His followers to follow suit? While we're never promised a pain-free existence or a suffering-free life here on earth, we are promised an end to it eventually. As we face down, as we face it down, we're promised companionship with God as well, who will walk with us until we see the fulfillment of all things. Church, my prayer was, as we read Psalm 88, my prayer was that in your image you saw Christ on a cross. Do you remember what he said up on that cross? Father, why have you forsaken me? 
Where did you go? What are you doing? Why is this happening? Jesus Christ understands your despair. He's lived it. And because he did not stay dead, because he was forsaken for you and for me, the Bible promises that you and I never will be forsaken, left alone. Take comfort from the fact that the sufferings of this life in comparison to eternity are the worst thing that you and I will ever face. I've said this before. If you're a Christian, if you've responded to Jesus in faith and repentance, this, what you're going through, it's the closest to hell that you will ever be. Take comfort in that. And, please listen. Hell has no light at the end of the tunnel. If you do not know Jesus, then you are alone in your suffering. You are in a far, far worse place than this psalmist. The hopelessness that he experienced, it was only apparent and it was only temporary. He couldn't see the whole picture. But friends, those who die without repenting of their sin will know true hopelessness. That which is real and eternal. You don't have to know that hopelessness. You can know Jesus. He desperately wants to know you. This is going to feel like a little bit of an abrupt break, but it's directed by the Holy Spirit. I got a text this week from a guy who was praying for our church. And he said, I feel like the Lord really wants us to know a truth from 1 John 2.1. He sent it to me and I said, actually, I think the Lord wants us to close with this. It's a little different. 1 John 2.1 says this, My dear children, I love that. It's how your Father speaks to you in Christ. You are dearly loved. My dear child, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But... If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. I'd like to invite you to close your eyes with me for a minute. As you do, I want you to think about walking into the throne room of heaven in your imagination. It's just you in there. The Father can't see him because he's spirit, but you sense his presence. You see Jesus. He's speaking to the Father. You can't hear what's being said, but you know they're talking about you, and instantly a pit forms in your stomach. Because why? I want you to fill in whatever that thing is you've been struggling with. Maybe it's the sin that no one knows about in your life. Maybe it's an emotion. Despair. Doubts. Questions. Grief. Think about the thing that makes you nervous to be in the presence of the Lord God Almighty. The thing that's been pressing in on your heart and soul. And now, 
you overhear Jesus. And what you hear makes your heart leap. He's pleading your case. He's advocating to the Father for you. And the Father is listening intently. Because of Jesus' words and His work on the cross and in the grave, the Father agrees you are accepted. You have right to be in His presence. You are loved. You are welcome in that throne room. God the Father is glad that you are there. He sees your weakness. He knows your struggles, your pain. And because of Jesus' work, because of Jesus' words on your behalf, the Father feels only compassion towards you. He knows you. He sees you. He wants you to know that He is glad to be with you. And Jesus wants you to know that He is on your side. Even in your struggle against sin, He is on your side. Not that your sin's not offensive, but that His sacrifice was enough to cover any and all of it. can open your eyes. Church, Jesus is your advocate. He's your mediator before the Father. And because of that, you need not ever be afraid to come openly and honestly, as you are, into his presence. Would you pray with me? Father, life has a way of making us feel dead at times. At times, it has a way of making us wish for death, if we're honest. Lord Jesus, by the power of your Spirit, I boldly request that you would never allow the pain of this life to cloud our eyes, our ears, or our senses from experiencing your presence. Father, if that ever happens, I pray that your voice that your word of promise would be the bedrock upon which our souls rest. I ask that everyone in here, for each and every person in here, for those who might listen online later, I pray that you would help us to take off our masks. That you would help us stop pretending we're fine when we're not. And that you would help us to openly and honestly come into your presence. And Lord Jesus, as we come, whether it be into community or into your presence privately, may we discover grace. May we see Jesus pleading our case and our cause. May we be met with tenderness and mercy. As you created Adam from dust and Eve from his rib, and then you breathed new life into them, would you breathe new life into us by the power of your Spirit here this morning? If we're suffering and the suffering we're enduring is allowed to persist, persist for longer than we would like or want or wish, Holy Spirit, allow us never to become crushed or consumed by it. Gird us up under it with hope. Reveal to us the light at the end of the tunnel, tunnel that we might persevere. 
and finish strong in the faith. Make us alive, Lord, for your glory and our joy, we pray. Amen.